But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. So uh, you can be seated. We are continuing uh, talking, uh, preaching through the, this great speech that Jesus gives near the end of his life and ministry. Uh, we started talking about the Holy Spirit a couple of weeks ago and his work in our sanctification. And then uh, last week we talked about persecution and the reality of persecution that comes in the Christian's life. And, and this week we're going to continue looking at the work of the Holy Spirit, but we're specifically going to look at his work in conversion. And conversion is kind of a weird subject to talk about. When I think about conversion, I think about, you know, sweaty guys yelling in a microphone on the street. You know, I think about uh, little old ladies with pamphlets coming up to my door trying to, to tell me about something they really believe in. I, I honestly, I tend to think about pushy people. People who when I, when I meet them, I, I, I hear the passion in their voices, but I wonder, is this really about me or is it about you? But this passage that we're looking at today, it gives us a very different perspective on how people come to faith. And it tells us that when people go from not believing in God to believing in God, when they go from not knowing who he is to following Jesus Christ and, and believing that he is their, their savior, it's, it's different than we tend to think. It's not really that they have been convinced about a certain set of doctrines. It's, conversion is not really uh, 
assuming that you, that you now want to start following a certain kind of Christian lifestyle. But coming to faith is really more like being swept up by a power that is totally outside of yourself. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning for a few minutes. I want to talk about what conversion, first of all, what conversion isn't. Then I want to talk about what conversion is. And finally, I, I want to talk about what will happen, what happens when we finally believe. So let's start with the first one. What conversion isn't? Around the time that Ruby, my firstborn, uh, was born, we had a, a neighbor, uh, and we were pretty friendly with her. You know, we'd make small talk as we were coming in and out of our apartments. Uh, she was nice, and she knew that I was a pastor. Occasionally, I'd tell her about services that we had going on, and, and I'd invite her to, to come to church. Um, but she wasn't a Christian. And as we talked, as I got to know her, I found out she did have some kind of exposure to the church. I think she said her, her mother or her aunt or her grandmother or somebody took her to church while she was growing up, and, and she thought the church was a, a perfectly fine thing. In fact, it was interesting because as I talked to her, it became clear that she kind of thought of becoming a Christian like it was just some responsible step that you take in adult life. She thought of coming to faith the same way you'd think about putting aside money for retirement or scheduling regular dental exams or something like that. She's something good to do, something that was on her list. Uh, she'd say things like, yeah, yeah, for sure. One day, I will become a Christian. One day I'm going to, but not yet. I'm not quite ready for it. There are, well, she was pretty honest. She said, there are some things I'd like to do that you just aren't supposed to do when you're a Christian. Now that phrase, that little response, it's pretty telling, isn't it? Because for her, being a Christian, what it really meant was getting serious about the rules, right? It was about, I don't know, becoming more disciplined, becoming a responsible person. It was about embracing some kind of, some set of traditional values. It was about giving up on having fun. But that's not what it means. That is not what Christianity is at all. We've been studying the Gospel of John now for quite a few weeks, even a few months. And what we have seen, I hope you've noticed this, over and over and over in this book, what you see is that the moral people, the religious people, the ones who are all about following the rules, are usually the ones that are furthest from Jesus, right? Like in John chapter 3. Can you remember all the way back to John chapter 3 when we preached on it? Well, well you, you probably remember that the most famous passage in all the Bible is there, right? You can read it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Do you remember who Jesus said that to, though? He said it to a man named Nicodemus. And who was Nicodemus? He was a teacher of the scriptures, right? He was an expert. He knew all the rules, and, and he followed them to a T. And on top of all that, we get the idea that he was a pretty good guy. He was a pretty good person. And yet, Jesus, 
in that very same conversation where he gives that very famous verse, he tells him, you must be born again. He tells him that none of that stuff matters. You still need to be converted. Or in the Gospel of Luke, there's a very famous parable. It's a parable we usually call the parable of the prodigal son. And it's the story that Jesus tells about a father who had two children. And the story starts off where there's the, the younger son demanding his inheritance from his father while the father's still alive. So incredibly insulting. And he takes his inheritance. And the story goes that he, he goes out and he squanders it all. In fact, he ruins his life and gets to the place where he's completely destitute and has to come back to his father begging. But you know, maybe you know the story. The father comes out, receives him with open arms, hugs him, celebrates, slaughters a a calf, has a huge party for him. And then, at the end of the story, that's where the real point is. It's the older brother. And Jesus tells us that when he is, he's angry. When he sees how the father has responded to this younger brother with grace and mercy, he replies this way. You see it up on your screen. He says in verse 29, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, came back home. You killed a fattened calf for him. And that's pretty much the end of the story. The story ends with the, quote, good son, the one who did all the right things, standing outside of the party, refusing to come in because he had this sense of his own righteousness. He had this sense of what justice looked like. People tend to think that conversion is just this decision to now follow a certain moral standard, to become a good Christian. But in the Bible, we actually see the opposite is the case. The people who are are aware of how good they are are on the outside looking in. They are far from faith. Those are the people that don't know God. But it's those people who know that they're a mess. They're the ones that end up nearest to Jesus. In the Gospels, the religious people grumble and they complain and they stand in judgment over Jesus. But those who know that they're in need, they're the ones that gather around. They they flock to him by the thousands, unashamed. So that's what conversion isn't. Conversion isn't a choice to be good from now on. It's not a choice to start going to church all the time or to follow the Ten Commandments or anything like that. So what is it? Well, let's talk about that. What, what is conversion? Okay, I want you to put yourself in the passage for a moment. Imagine it. Now, we just, we're, like I said, this is a portion of one of Jesus' final speeches. It's, it's right after the Last Supper. And he is giving this long speech because he's trying to prepare his disciples before he goes to be crucified. He's trying to prepare them for what's coming. Now imagine you're one of those disciples. And you're sitting there and 
and you've been hanging around with Jesus now for years, day in and day out. You've gotten to be with him. You've gotten to see what he does and hear what he says. And you've, you've seen some amazing things, right? You have seen the sick healed. You have seen the hungry fed. You have seen broken lives put back together and turned around. And you've heard some amazing things. You've been there when crowds of thousands have gathered around to hear Jesus teach. And the things that he has been teaching are literally world-changing kind of ideas. For the first time, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Or turn the other cheek. And here you are, sitting with him one night. And Jesus says to you that he's going to go away. And then he goes so far to say, what does it say in verse 7? It is to your advantage that I go away. He says, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, okay, let's stop there for a second. Now Jesus, when he's talking about the helper, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. But what might you be thinking at that moment? What is Jesus going to say next? What could possibly be better than having Jesus right here with you at that moment? What is this amazing thing that the Spirit could possibly do for you? What are you thinking? You know, personally, I think if I was in that room, I'd probably be thinking, wow, we're going to get some, like, Awesome superpowers or something like that, you know? It's going to be, who knows what it's going to be. But here's what he says, verse 8. He says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment... Because the ruler of this world is judged. He says, this spirit is going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. What does that mean, though? Well, put simply, it means whenever any person on this earth sees that they have missed the mark. Whenever any person on this earth realizes that they really lack true righteousness. Whenever anyone realizes that they stand guilty before God, whenever they look at the world and realize that the world's sense of judgment is broken and skewed, that is a work of God. Or put it another way, left to our own devices, we cannot see our need for God. Left to our own devices, we cannot possibly see our need for God. Now, that doesn't mean we think we're, that we're perfect. I don't know anybody, maybe psychopaths, right? They might say they're perfect, but most people don't think they're perfect. They'll say, no, 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 nobody's perfect. I'm imperfect. But secretly we're thinking, but I'm in the upper half, right? <laughs> we, that's the way we are. We cannot admit 
our need from God. We, 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 we know we're not the best, but we also think we're probably above average. And I don't know if this is a good illustration or not, but, but here it comes anyway. <laughs> when I was a kid, at Thanksgiving, we'd have a big family meal at my grandparents' house, and my, my dad's sister and his brother and their families would come. So all of our cousins, aunts and uncles, we'd have a big Thanksgiving meal. And this was like the only time all year when we would ever be together and see each other. And I remember that how our family thought of those gatherings. We thought, well, this one side of the family, well, they're kind of the, the weird ones. Maybe, <laughs> maybe a little creepy, even. And then this other side of the family, well, you know, they're kind of the wild ones. You know, they're doing some risky things with their lives. But we, well, we're the normal ones. And a few years ago, I, I ended up reconnecting with one of my cousins, and we're kind of reflecting on these Thanksgiving gatherings. And she said, no, no, we were the normal ones. You guys are the stuck-up ones. <laughs> and isn't that how it goes, though, right? That's, that's kind of how we are in life, isn't it? Our default way of thinking is that we're the normal ones, that we're doing fine, that we're holding our own, that we're about average or a little bit better. But the Bible says we are not fine. In fact, we are far from fine. It says, spiritually speaking, we have a deadly disease. The prophet Jeremiah, he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Bible says, spiritually, we are sick. And in our own, we can't see that. Now, sure, we can see the symptoms of the sickness, can't we? We can see the symptoms of the sickness in our lives. We see broken relationships. We see pain. We see our battle with addiction. We see our self-hatred. We see our anxiety. We see our fear. We see the emptiness that we are always trying to ignore or drown out. We see all these clues that something's wrong. We just can't put it together. We can't figure out what it all means. We feel in our hearts this longing for something, but we don't know what it is. And so, God has to show us. That's what Jesus says. He says that that's what his spirit comes to do. He shows up. And sometimes that happens in an instant. Maybe that's your story. You know, the, the, the Holy Spirit comes just busted through the wall like the Kool-Aid man. You know, all of a sudden, you're aware. You're like, oh, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Other times, it's more subtle. Other times, the message just kind of slowly penetrates your heart. And you encounter the church, and this community of faith starts walking with you in life. And, and it's not just one big moment, but it's the course over the course of a hundred different little conversions. That one day, you don't know when it happens, but you look up and you realize, Jesus is my Savior. And, and I'm lost without Him. But regardless of how it happens... The one thing that never changes is that, that we are enabled 
by the Spirit to see something that we could never see before. That's conversion. It's not about following the rules. It's not about believing a certain set of doctrine. It's not about just trying to be a better person. It is about the Lord opening your eyes to see what's really going on. He opens our eyes. And he shows us that there is a God. And that he made you to know him and to enjoy him forever. But that you are sick. Your soul is sick. It's far from him. And there is nothing that you can do to fix it on your own. When Jesus preached his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, you can read about it in in Matthew chapter 5. Do you remember how he starts that sermon? What are the first words? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That encapsulates there in that verse just uh, what it means to come to faith. He's saying that it is a blessed movement of God's spirit that, that he lets us see what we really are. That we're poor in spirit. That means that we stand before God empty-handed. We're impoverished. We're not middle class in front of God. We're definitely not in the upper half. But in fact, we are broken. Spiritually speaking. We've got nothing to offer. There's nothing that we can possibly impress him with. And and if you can see that, if you can say that that is true of you, well, then that's good news because it means he is already at work. If you can look at your life and you can honestly say right now, I have missed the mark. Even my good deeds, when I'm being honest, they're laced with selfish intentions. I'm spiritually poor. Well, what Jesus teaches us in this passage is that if you can say that, you're on holy ground. Because God is already on the move in your life. That is the work of the Spirit. The Spirit holds up a mirror to your life and shows you that you're broken. But then he points to the reality of a God who comes to make you whole. So what happens after that, you might ask? If that's what conversion is, what happens next? What happens when we finally start to believe? I think it's fair to say that at the core, the gospel message is is the good news of a great rescue. The gospel is about this great rescue mission. You might hear that word and maybe you don't even think about what it means, but maybe it represents to you the, the dogma of some distant deity who's demanding that you get your life together. But that's not what it is. The gospel is the good news. It is, it is the news of the mercy of God. The only God, the true God, the living God who loves you so much that he committed to save you at all costs. 
we are rebellious. We are resisting. We are stubborn. We are prideful. We are clinging to our own weak imitation of righteousness, saying, this is what makes me a good person. But in his mercy, Jesus came in real righteousness, in true perfection. And he went to the cross and died. On the cross, Jesus took the penalty that you were supposed to get. And now that's the invitation for anyone who would come. The invitation is to come and lay your doing down. Lay all those works down. Give up that pale imitation of goodness and instead receive his perfection as your own. The invitation is admit your poverty and be made rich. But that's still not the whole of it because you know what this passage is saying? That even with that kind of beautiful message, even with a fantastic offer like that, we still resist him. We still want to live our lives apart from God. Scripture actually says that still 100 times out of 100, we will choose ourselves because that's how deep the sickness is inside of us. That's how deep our brokenness goes. We don't want anything to do with him. I've shared this this before, but I'm, I'm going to share it again. I've been here two years, you know. The illustrations are going to start repeating at this point. <laughs> but Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with him and he with me. Uh, Pastor Jack Miller gives this example. You know, we like to think of this verse as a, a great description of how we come to faith. You know, Jesus is there. He's knocking at the door. We come over, we open it, and there he is, and then we have a meal. But what, what Jack Miller says is, you know, what, that, that's how we think of it. But here's what really happens. We hear Jesus knocking at the door, and we go grab the chair, and we, we wedge it under the doorknob. <laughs> And we, then we get the fridge and we push it against the chair and we get the dresser and we push it against the fridge and we find everything we can to pile it up so that Jesus can't come in. And while that's going on in our lives, the Holy Spirit comes into the basement and he starts a fire. And the smoke starts to fill up our house and to fill up our lungs. And just when we think we're about to die, we start to pull those things away and think, if I can just run past Jesus. And he open, you open the door and he grabs a hold of us. And then we say, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." <laughs> See, the real story is he claims us as his own. And that might sound a little scary to you, but I've even heard it put this way, that if you belong to the Lord, he will have you. But I promise, <laughs> there is nothing to fear once he has you in his arms. See, the Christian life, it's, it's not about your work to become a better person. It's about his work to transform you into the person you are always meant to be. Dwelling with him and his presence for eternity. And this last verse of our passage this morning, 
Jesus says that that's not the only thing the Spirit does. It's not just that he opens our eyes, but he says at the end, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He will take all that is mine and declare it to you. And that's a breathtaking kind of statement. Because it shows us that the same power that sparks faith in our heart in that very first moment is the same power that is going to sustain our faith. The reason why Jesus could tell his disciples, it's better that I leave you, is because the Holy Spirit in our life is literally God with us all the time. He never leaves us. He is constantly in our lives declaring to us who we are in Christ. Taking everything that belongs to him and declaring it, applying it to us. The Holy Spirit, his work is to bring us into the throne room of God. Charles Spurgeon, he put it this way. He said, if you're on the battlefield and you find a man wounded, it doesn't help to say, hey, I've got great news a few miles away. There is a hospital, and there are doctors, and there are surgeons, and all the medicine, and they can fix you right up. No, what he needs is for you to carry him there. Well, it's the same with the state of our wounded souls. When you trust in the Lord, his spirit enters your life and carries you there. He becomes your constant advocate, your constant helper. He is delivering you the grace that you need. Defending you against the attacks of this world. Defending you against your own weakness. Defending you against the evil in this world that would hunt you down and try to pull you away from God. And he is there daily reminding you that you belong to the Lord. And there's nothing that can stop his love. Think about it. If he was willing to step out of eternity and come to earth and die for you, well, then, of course, there is nothing that can change his mind about you now. The Spirit is there applying the grace to our hearts, saying, you are loved. You are welcomed. You, right now, are rejoiced over. That is the gospel. That's what happens when you believe. Yeah, on the one hand, you see your failings clearer than you ever did before. But on the other hand, you walk in a new reality. You live with a new power. You know that you have been set free, that you're loved by God. And as that love sinks into your life, it changes you. It changes the way that you love the people around you. It changes your motivation for doing good. Not so that you will be found righteous one day, but because you already have. You already are. So let me ask you this morning as we close, do you know that power? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this great rescue mission. We recognize that, that we are spiritually poor. 
We have nothing to offer. We come to you empty-handed. We come to you, Lord, our natural state, we are so arrogant. We think that we're far better than we are, and we pray, God, that you today would bless us with the gift of spiritual poverty, that you'd show us our need. But, Lord, don't leave us there. God, I pray that you'd show us Jesus. Lord, I pray that the, the reality of his love for us would hit so hard that today we leave here transformed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.